Good evening. Good to be here with, with you. First of all, I'd like to talk about just an introduction to our Blessed Mother and to tell you about my own experience with our Blessed Mother. And to do so, I'd have to start within my own family. For my birth, I received many blessings, and the greatest of blessings amongst my family was my brothers and sisters. I have ten brothers and four sisters, number four in my family. So looking to my own mother and her love and affection for each one of us, not one of us feeling neglected or slighted or lost in the shuffle, I could see how it would be that our Blessed Mother can be mother for us all, for each one of us, and not less so for being mother of all of us. And all the more as we'll speak later in the week through the beatific vision that our Blessed Mother enjoys in heaven. So that was a ritual kind of experience, and I learned devotion to Mary from my own mother and my family. In the midst of my my time in college, I grew in towards the vocation to the priesthood by taking up the task of leading the rosary at Christendom College. They would have the evening chapel rosary, and it was an original experience where, well, there was a need, and the faculty member that was doing this was no longer available. I filled in that need and grew in devotion to Mary because I was committed to that time every evening at 6 o'clock to pray the rosary. When I was away in Rome in the midst of seminary studies, I wanted to learn more about our Blessed Mother, and surprisingly, the seminaries would not offer many courses on our Blessed Mother, no specific course dedicated to Our Lady. And I obtained then permission from my bishop to specialize in Mariology. As Father Samuel was saying, at the Pontifical Marian Institute, the Mariana. Have ever any of you read G.K. Chesterton, a great poet from the early 20th century? He wrote The Ballad of the White Horse. It's a great epic ballad. Some say the last great epic ballad in the English language. Therein, King Alfred the Great has this influential, really pivotal encounter with our Blessed Mother, overwhelmed with the invading Vikings, King Alfred the Great retreats into an island and he reflects on what he should do. How can he respond to this evil invading his land? Our Blessed Mother then appears to him and encourages him. She says, I tell you not for your comfort and not for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet and the sea rises higher. Night shall be thrice night over you, and heaven an iron hope. Do you have joy without a cause, yea, faith without a hope? This paradoxical hope encourages King Alfred. Also, the encounter with our Blessed Mother herself encourages him to see before his eyes this pure image of the beauty of Christian life and culture made it worthwhile for him to fight the invading Vikings, to risk his own death, and 
in the first task to summon the great chieftains of England at the time to join him to rally for a great battle against the invading Vikings. Along the way, he has these uh, encounters then with uh, three chieftains. When I was studying Mariology, what he said to one of them in particular resonated with me. He said to one, Seek ye a fable more dizzy and more dread than all your mad barbarian tales where the sky stands on its head. A tale where a man looks down upon the sky that has long looked down on him. A tale where a man might swallow a sea that might swallow a seraphim. It was a curious image, but I applied it then to our Blessed Mother, looking down upon a sky. You see, in one of the greatest books about our Blessed Mother, by St. John Eudes, The Admirable Heart of Mary, St. John Eudes speaks about various images of our Blessed Mother. How can we come to understand how our Blessed Mother is towards us? And the favorite of mine that he uses is to speak about Mary as like the sky. Think of the pure blue sky. In that way, in this image, our Lord is like the sun, the radiant sun that always comes to us in the context of the sky. We couldn't have the, we don't practically in our lives have the sun without the context of the sky. So we don't have our Lord without the context of our Blessed Mother. And the sun is most effective when the sky is clear as our Blessed Mother and the purity of her Immaculate Conception allows the rays of the light of Christ, her Son, to shine through. So to look down upon this sky, to study our Blessed Mother, that has long looked down on him. So to realize the love and care of our Blessed Mother throughout my life and yet be able to academically look at the mystery of Mary. And the image of the sea that might swallow a seraphim There is a Latin pun in this for applying it to our Blessed Mother. The name Maria and Mare. It was said that our Lord God in creating the universe, creating the world, he put all of the seas together, as Genesis describes. He put them together, all the waters of the world, and called them the sea, Mare. And the medievals would use then this pun that God put all the graces in the world together, and he called them Maria, Mare Maria. So the sea that is an image of our Blessed Mother, the vast sea of grace that we find in Mary, the fullness of grace. And more about that tomorrow as we explore the the joyful mysteries. Now there's another image that St. John uses, various others in fact, some too elaborate for our time frame, but he speaks about our Blessed Mother in some sense like the sun, the sun itself, for our Lord would say that God the Father loves all of us as he allows the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. So the sun as is created 
thing that expresses the love of God and Mary as this creature, so pure, so bright, and the radiance of her holiness that reflects that love of God for us. And our Blessed Mother, with that love, the heart of Mary, the love of a mother for each of us. St. Alphonsus de Gori would say that if you could add up all the love of all the mothers in the world for their children, and even to throw in all the love of all the spouses for one another, you would not yet equal the love that the Blessed Virgin Mary has for each one of us, her children. Each one of us. So the surpassing love, more brilliant even than the light of the sun, that created light, there's that created love in the heart of Mary. Actually, your pastor here, Father Samuel, spoke prophetically just yesterday as he was attending to the problem of the snow. His work was not performed to be seen, but he had to clear the snow so that people might more safely come for the uh, Saturday Vigil Mass. And so he was clearing the snow, shoveling it, and then he said to the sun, Sun, do your work. Shine down on this. Hopefully that the snow would melt. That, in a word, is what this Marian mission is about. That's why we begin with the rosary. Mary is like that sun, and our hearts have that layer of ice and snow that needs mounted. And most effective of all is we just come before our Blessed Mother and allow her to do her work the sun shining down upon us, and that warmth and light that uh, cleanses our hearts, mounts the coldness of our hearts. So that light of love. Now with the Marian mission, it's still a parish mission, it feels like we need to speak about the Ten Commandments. We need to have that call for, for renewed sense of examination of conscience. So for a moment, I'd like to comment on another level, to bring also our Blessed Mother in. How does that light of our Blessed Mother as the sun help us in following the Ten Commandments? For one thing, the point to the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Fifty years after Pope Blessed Pius IX defined the Immaculate Conception as a dogma to be definitively held by Catholics. That was in 1854. In 1904 then, Pope St. Pius X wrote about this. And he looked, looking back in the last 50 years, and he said one of the most beautiful effects on, of the proclamation of this dogma was the betterment of Christian morals. That Marian doctrine had not only an influence on Marian devotion, but that dogma shed light on consciences. Looking to the purity of our Blessed Mother helped people want to be more pure, to realize that the purity that our Blessed Mother needed to have in her heart in order to have our Lord Jesus Christ the incarnate word of God in her womb prompted Christians 
to see how much more pure they needed to be to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, how much more pure they needed to be in their lives and hearts. So it's an often underestimated element, but the expectation and the real fruitfulness of Marian doctrine is for it to be overflowing into the devotion of our hearts and changing how we live and act, how we behave and following our Lord Jesus Christ. As he said, mentioned one of the masses, uh, well, it was the servant of God, Frank Duff, who was paraphrasing St. Thomas Aquinas. And he said, the Blessed Virgin Mary is more Christian than all Christians put together. So if we want to increase our faithfulness in following our Lord Jesus Christ, we look to the example of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now then, we're speaking to the first commandment. It is said that, on the one hand, we feel like we got the first commandment down. We're not worshiping any uh, false gods. We're not offering even incense to the emperor. We don't have any uh, carved idols that we're worshiping as gods, despite what Protestants might think. We're not really doing that. So we feel like we're going through our examination of conscience. We can check that box, doing okay. It is said, though, if we really were doing well with the first commandment, we wouldn't have such difficulty with the other nine. So, I'd like to go back to the beginning to look at the the text of it. Just to recall even that first verse, we think of it as, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. That's true, but that's the abridged version. Even to expand out to the verse is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery, Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. So first of all, I am the Lord your God. If we know God and his love for us, we wouldn't think to have strange gods. We wouldn't think to be distracted, diverted, falling short in our prayers and devotion, slacking off in the spiritual life. The Venerable Paul of Mole was a Benedictine wonder worker in Belgium from the late 19th century. And he had many great devotions, especially to the St. Benedict Medal. If you have a St. Benedict, Benedict Medal now, it's probably due to the, the influence of the Venerable Paul of Mole, even back in the, the 19th century, that, that popularized the St. Benedict Medal, and he would perform miracles with it. But one of his devotions is especially of note. I gave you many different papers and prayer cards, so I want to teach you a prayer that I didn't fit in on any of these. Uh, it's uh, a short prayer. Actually, I have it on another one that we'll be printing out in my makeshift print shop over at the rectory office. Uh, it's a simple one, so you can learn it. The Venerable Paul of Mole recommended this prayer. O love, O great love, O infinite love of God. That's it. To repeat that again and again. O love, O great love, O infinite love of God. O love, O great love, O infinite love of God. O love, O great love, O infinite love of God. 
He said that he knew men and women who had grown in their spiritual lives to deeper holiness simply by repeating such a prayer, to look to who God is, God as love, and to realize that our notion of love is then too small, and we have to think about it. Love, but great love, infinite love, how we kind of open up our hearts to think about this. And even that would, would take us a good ways forward. And even that is inherently Mary, our Blessed Mother, knowing the love of the most sacred heart of Jesus, knowing the love of God beyond any other creature. The more we are approaching the love of God, thinking about it, the more we are imitating our Blessed Mother. St. Augustine describes what faith is. He says it's thinking with assent. To think on something and to believe in it, to give assent, to give our agreement to it. Part of that, then, involves us even stopping to think. So the rosary does that. But even more, the rosary does something pertaining to the next part of that little verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. This is what our Lord did, the great foundational work of the Old Covenant. We can now look to the fulfillment of that image. Our Lord Jesus Christ and his work in his passion, death, and resurrection bring us up out of our spiritual Egypt, that place of spiritual slavery, out of our sins, our vices, our faults, the darkness of intellect, the weakness of will that comes along with sin. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. So if we want to observe that commandment more fully, we attend to that. First of all, the love that is God and focusing more and more in our hearts and our thoughts on that love and thinking of this whole work of our Lord Jesus Christ. As St. Paul says, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own divine light. So we need that remembrance of that work. And that is what we're doing when we pray the Holy Rosary. Again and again, we're placing before our minds and hearts the central mysteries of the faith, the most important events in human history, in salvation history, for the whole universe. Some in our time have expressed special concern about the marginalized. If we, in our hearts, are looking to our Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us, his life, his love, his suffering, his death and resurrection, we are not at all on the margins. We are at the center. We're at the very center of the universe. That's where our thoughts are or where we are. Some great saints would bilocate. You know, Padre Pio would bilocate. And where would he go? To Loretto. He would go to the house of the Holy Family in Loretto or to Rome. When, so Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich would say that where our thoughts are is where we are, even more so than where our body is. 
is where our thoughts are. So, I go back to that context where Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich speaks about this. She saw how a priest was offering Holy Mass. He was right up at the altar. He was right up at the altar and offering Holy Mass. Actually, back then, he would have been on this side of the altar. And he was offering Holy Mass. And then she saw him walking down and attending to some business and talking with some people. And then occasionally going back up to the altar and going back and forth. And she wondered what this was, but to explain, even the whole time to everyone else, he was just there. But Blessed Emmerich saw the spiritual reality. He was there in body, but his mind was wandering to those other things. And therefore, he wasn't really all there. And like the absent-minded professor, the absent-minded priest, it's a, it is a real problem, but it's not only for the priests, for the faithful to have our minds and hearts where we need to be spiritually and to realize how powerful that is. Few of us, if any, may be given the vivid experience spiritually of bilocating to the house of the Holy Family. If you do, talk to your priest. You need special guidance. That's beautiful. But we all have that opportunity in praying the rosary. We can be there with our Lord in the upper room, with the apostles waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, with the apostles again gathered around the deathbed of our Blessed Mother in Ephesus, with our Blessed Mother as the Eternal Queen of Heaven, with the angels and the saints. Our hearts can be there, and so we are not just in a small town in Montana. We are with the central mysteries of the faith. Our hearts, we are where our hearts are, where our thoughts are. So it seems like Father Samuel is in the back row there, but who knows where he is right now. He, he's talking to me all the time. He can hear about this otherwise. But we hope we're all, all here together. So there is real power, opportunity in, in the rosary. It's not missing out on anything, but bringing us to the closer, closest to the, the central mysteries of, of salvation. So we can go through then some further on through the, the commandments. The second commandment about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. For God will not leave unpunished those who take his name in vain. It specifically promises punishment for, for the, the blasphemy of the name of our Lord. Some mystics have even pointed out in the early 20th century that World War I was a consequence of sin, specifically blasphemy, the disregard, dishonoring of the name of our Lord. When our Blessed Mother came to La Salette in the late 19th century, Our Lady was weeping and weeping, and these children asked why. And it was because their, the local farmers were using her son's name as a curse word in the midst of their work. They were blaspheming, and Our Lady prophesied chastisements, partly because of that, also because of offenses against the Third Commandment, before we get ahead of ourselves, because they were neglecting 
to observe the Lord's Day, to keep it holy, to attend Holy Mass, and to avoid unnecessary work. In the Holy Rosary, we are giving honor to the name of Jesus. It is a matter of setting the name of Jesus in the most beautiful setting. You know what we do when we have Eucharistic adoration? We place the monstrance out and we place the host in the monstrance in this place to be seen and observed and honored and adored. So the Hail Mary is like a monstrance for the the name of Jesus. St. John Paul II said that the center of gravity of the Hail Mary is the name of Jesus, and that it was not just some historical accident that the name of Mary is placed right next to the name of Jesus in in, in the Hail Mary. So when we pray the rosary, we are giving honor to the name of Jesus. And we should well do it with the intention to make reparation for the sins of blasphemy. So that by our loving pronouncing of the name of Jesus, we make reparation for those who pronounce his name with irreverence. So likewise, for the third commandment, reminded of Psalm 95, which priests would pray every day. In fact, Psalm 95 is the invitatory psalm that has been used at the beginning of the divine office for the fifth century. Every day, every monk, especially the Benedictines, would pray that psalm, the first in the day, all the way up until 1970, when a few other options were given for the invitatory psalm. But basically, every day we'd pray this. And it laments, though, about their hearts go astray, and they do not know my ways, the Lord says. Therefore, they shall not enter into my rest. The Sabbath day is about entering into the rest of our Lord. Remember how our Lord introduces it, that six days you have to work, rest on the seventh day. For our Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So... It is written into who we are as creatures of God that we would rest on the seventh day. We're made in the image and likeness of God, and so we imitate God who himself rests on the seventh day. And that rest is not primarily about recreation, as I think of it, is rest in truth, rest in prayer, rest in devotion, in love of our Lord, and the rosary can help us to do that. The fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, is especially fulfilled when we're honoring our Blessed Mother and imitating our Lord Jesus Christ, who would always honor both St. Joseph as his foster father and our Blessed Mother. So in giving that attention to Mary, we are imitating our Lord. Also regarding the fifth commandment, it is not only to not kill, but we can be blessing others and praying for them and countering any kind of sinful envy by praying for blessings for them instead.
we can pay our debts by praying rosaries for those whom we otherwise could not repay. Regarding the Sixth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment, we can get to greater purity in our hearts by filling our hearts with holy thoughts in the Holy Rosary. In particular, the second sorrowful mystery, the scourging at the pillar, is especially for the virtue of purity. There is a power in each of the mysteries of the rosary, and so when we're reflecting on the passion of our Lord, we obtain graces that our Lord himself merited for us and by his sufferings. And in his sufferings in his body, he obtained for us graces to be pure in body and mind and heart. Regarding the seventh and 10th commandments, we can be still more, uh, we were saying, paying debts by, by the, the rosary. When we cannot undo the harm we've done to others, regarding the fifth commandment, by harming people and their reputation, we can be praying for them. And regarding the eighth commandment, the not bearing false witness, we are more honest when we are stepping into that dynamic of love and when we're casting perfect love that casts out all fear. In particular, do this by growing the virtue of humility, and then we're not afraid of what is true, for humility is truth. I wanted to call your attention to some of the resources that are made available in the back. We have for you not only the uh, classic litany of humility that is often attributed to Cardinal Mary de Ball, but a special scriptural litany of humility. Humility is truth and is for the foundation of our spiritual lives. The foundation of your life is prayer, but the Catechism says one of the reasons that we avoid prayer is because of a lack of humility. We think we can get by without it. Whereas St. Alphonsus Liguori, the great doctor of the church in moral theology, would say that God gives us sufficient grace so as to pray. But if we're going to overcome temptation, we have to remember to pray for the grace to do so. He who faces temptation and neglects prayer is like a soldier who comes into battle and drops his weapon right in the midst of battle. We need to humbly turn to God in prayer every day, and especially at the moment of temptation. St. Alphonsus Liguori would say if he had, when he was asked on his deathbed, if he could give one last homily, if he could underscore one more point after he had preached so much and written so many pamphlets and brochures, he said that he would preach on the topic of the necessity of prayer in the moment of temptation. It's our pride that would make us think we can get by without the special help of actual graces. It's our pride that would keep us from praying so that we can choose love, purity, honesty, integrity. And so that habit of prayer with the rosary obtains for us graces in advance 
and we're then better disposed to remember to humbly pray when we are tempted. For many years, since the time of St. Dominic, we'd have up to 15 decades of the Rosary. St. Dominic himself would emphasize different mysteries. When he would go from one town to another, he would see what kind of heresy and sense would problem, error, and confusion would predominate there. And when he preached, he would emphasize one mystery or another of the Rosary. It was a Dominican Pope, Pope St. Pius V, that had an influence on standardizing the 15 decades we have now. And so when St. John Paul II introduced the luminous mysteries, we haven't had as much reflection of how to put that in. How can we see the, the luminous mysteries? We can think of faith, hope, and love for the three sets of mysteries. But for a fourth set, how do we fit it in? And for a final point, we're coming end of our time for this evening. Wanted to reflect on, well, we're doing the particular mysteries through the week, so to look at the rosary in general. The angel taught this prayer to the children at Fatima. Oh my God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love thee. And I beg pardon for those who do not believe, who do not adore, who do not trust, and who do not love thee. And in a way, we can see these, this belief, adoration, trust, and love in the four mysteries, the four sets of mysteries of the rosary. So in the joyful mysteries, we see the pure faith of our Blessed Mother. As Elizabeth says, blessed are you who believe that what was told to you would be fulfilled. So the strong faith of our Blessed Mother in responding to the Word of God. I adore, in the second set, in the luminous mysteries, we think of adoring our Lord like on the Mount of the Transfiguration, the resplendent glory of our Lord transfigured, and in the most blessed sacrament that we call in the fifth mystery of light. I trust in the sorrowful mysteries, remember the passion of our Lord, and St. Faustina in particular summons us to deeper trust in regard to the passion of our Lord. Because of the love that he shows us on the cross, because of the blood and water flowing from his pierced side, we should say, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. So we think of after the sorrowful mysteries, or I trust in you. And then the mystery of love and the glorious mystery. We see the vindication of the love of our Lord in his resurrection, the love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the love that is triumphant in our Blessed Mother and her Immaculate Heart and her reign as Mother of Divine Love, as Queen of the Universe, the Queen of Pure Divine Love. So, my God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love thee. And I beg pardon for those who do not believe, who do not adore, who do not trust, and who do not love thee. I put this together some years ago, reflecting on these. And one of the things, go back to the beginning, a blessing of having brothers. 
so I was talking to my brothers about this, and they said, hmm, well, that's good, but, you know, you could also say love is in the first, in the, the joyful mysteries, and you could also be adoring of our risen Lord in the glorious mysteries, and they, they took each of those and jumbled them to the other ones and, and um, tore my argument apart. Uh, you can have that, only brothers can do that so, uh, so uh, sharply. But the thing is, the easiest way to, to, to sidestep is that, well, yes, that's beautiful, that's prayer. Meditate on the mysteries. Find how each of those are in each of the sets of mysteries. And that is itself a beautiful way to pray. Think about how the belief of Mary is so relevant for at the foot of the cross, Mary still believed with all the purity and perfection of her heart. Think of the love that is present when Jesus turns the water into wine, the love that he has for our Blessed Mother and for the spouses at that wedding at Cana, for the apostles who need to see his power manifest, who begin to believe in him. Think about all those mysteries. See how those virtues are there. I assure you, you can find all the virtues in, in some way, in all the mysteries, all the love of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the most sacred heart of Jesus is present in each mystery. It's like how in every particle of the host, it is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter as long as the smallest particle you can see, it's still our Lord, his whole body, blood, soul and divinity. So in each of the mysteries, we can see them as windows into the heart of our Lord and the, the whole abyss of all virtues as we invoke him in the litany of the most sacred heart of Jesus. But it's good for the soul when we do that. So think about it, think through it, and reflect, meditate, venerate his mysteries and the love of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's what this that's what this mission is about. It can help your heart to allow that sun of grace to to shine on you to melt that cold and snow, and it's good for your soul. It's good for the moral life. These doctrines of the faith aren't just dry points in a textbook. They're to be planted in our souls for reflection, for our hearts to be warmed by the, the light of truth, and for us then to act with greater love. One important thing we'll have this evening, probably by about 8.30, I'll be available in the confessional. One of my professors at the Mariana put it so eloquently. He would say and would warn us, the Christian life is more than about avoiding sin. It's so important to do. Yes, we obey the commandments, especially the great commandment to love God with all of our heart mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbor as ourself. It's important to avoid sin, to overcome temptation, to uproot vice. But it's more than that. It's about living a fullness of life in the Holy Spirit, in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ, in union with his most sacred heart. And that is also what our Blessed Mother reminds us of in the Holy Rosary, the fullness of life and love 
to which our Lord Jesus Christ, her son, calls us. To conclude, let us pray this prayer to the, let's pray the one, the salutation to the most holy heart of Jesus and Mary. It's in the long bookmark prayer card. We pray this together in the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, the heart most holy. Hail, the heart most meek. Hail, the heart most humble. Hail, the heart most pure. Hail, the heart given without reserve. Hail, the heart most wise. Hail, the heart most patient. Hail, the heart most obedient. Hail, the heart most diligent. Hail, the heart most faithful. Hail, heart most blessed. Hail, heart most merciful. Hail, most loving heart of Jesus and Mary. We adore you. We praise you. We glorify you. We give you thanks. We love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. We offer you our heart. We give it to you. We consecrate it to you. We sacrifice it to you. Receive and possess holy, purifying, enlightening, sanctifying, that you may live and reign now and forever. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of Amen. The Lord be with you. Through Mary, the Immaculate Conception, patroness of the United States, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.